Amen, amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming today. Okay, so we're in the middle of a series called The Crucified King. Uh, we're, we're walking through the last half of the book of Mark together as Jesus and his disciples are also walking towards Jesus' crucifixion. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Mark chapter 10 today. Mark chapter 10. Now, um, our overarching preaching philosophy at Mercy Hill is more often than not, we take books of the Bible and work our way through them, uh, which means occasionally we get to texts that are difficult and complicated. Uh, today is one of those days. Uh, so here's what is about to happen. Uh, I'm about to kick over a hornet's nest, and you get to watch um, and see uh, what, what could possibly happen as we address this text together. Here's the deal. One of my greatest fears is not saying hard things. One of my greatest fears as a communicator is saying hard things in a way that is unclear or lacks compassion. And so we're going to give you the opportunity today. If you have any sort of questions about what we're going to talk about, any questions at all, uh, you can text this number. I just want you to know this isn't someone's cell phone number. Uh, this is a, a phone number. This is a long code to our text service that we use, to so the same one you get updates from and that sort of thing. Uh, and so you're not going to be like texting someone at their, you know, like on their personal phone or anything like that. Um, and so you can text that number in. Listen, we are not going to, in 35 minutes, address all the questions that this text is going to raise, especially in our current current cultural moment and everything going on around us right now. So Mark 10, uh, Jesus is asked about divorce. And in that conversation, he defines marriage. And so we're just jumping in together. Okay. Is everybody okay? Um, so I, I'm thinking no one needs a cute story where I make you laugh this morning to get to pique your interest. I imagine when I said I was going to kick over a hornet's nest, uh, that is enough. Uh, so let's pray together, and then we're going to jump into this text. Father, uh, I just pray uh, that you would help me to be clear, uh, help me to say and teach what is here in the text, uh, nothing less and nothing more. And uh, God, could you uh, use these moments uh, to point us clearly uh, to your design for our lives, uh, our families, and more importantly, how we can be uh, restored in your son, Jesus Amen. All right, Mark chapter 10. Here's where we start in verse 1. Mark records that he, that's Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Here's the context. Jesus has just been in Capernaum. He's leaving Capernaum and he's going to this place in Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, if this phrase is familiar to you, it's because we've seen it a couple of times in Mark. This area was John the Baptist's home base for ministry. And so when Jesus's interactions with John happened, they happened in this region. Now, I need you to put a pin in what I just told you because we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. But this is where Jesus is. Verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, uh, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is interesting that Mark points out that this question is not a question made in good faith. And so just like our day, in Jesus' day, people asked questions in bad faith. And this example is they are trying to test or trick Jesus. Now, why is this a test? It's a test because marriage and divorce were controversial issues in Jesus' day. 
is not any different than our day. It's a controversial issue for the Romans, which you might remember occupying Israel at this time, uh, because it was well known in the Roman world that both men and women could divorce their spouses at almost any time. And in fact, remember how I told you the location is important? This is a very issue that got John the Baptist executed. Herodias was married to Philip. She left Philip for Herod, who was the ruler at that time, and they got married. And John spoke out against it, making him an enemy of the ruler of their local region and ultimately led to his execution. Now you understand why this is a trick? Hey, we're going to get you in the same location where something really bad happened to your cousin and ask you to answer the same exact question that got him killed. Not only is this a controversial issue in the Roman world, but it's also a controversial issue in the Jewish world in the first century. We tend to do something wrong often. And that thing that we do that's wrong is we assume that first century, uh, the first century Jewish world, Jesus' day, is somewhat like 1950s United States. Uh, that, that maybe this topic of divorce would be an example of that. We seem to think that it's so conservative that divorce is going to be a taboo topic, much like it was 50, 60, 70 years ago in our country, but that's not true. In fact, in Jesus's day, divorce was common. Most often because Jewish men like to upgrade, right? Does this sound familiar? And so in Jesus' day and time, there's a lot of discussion about divorce. It's a controversial issue. There were two basic camps, one that taught there were some reasons for divorce, and another one that taught there was all the reasons were for divorce, right? Does that make sense? And so they're trying to trick Jesus into identifying which camp he belongs into. Now, Jesus answers them, verse 3, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So Jesus says, well, why don't you tell me what you think the law of Moses says? And they said, oh, we know what Moses says. Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce, and then you could send your wife away. You ever been in a conversation with someone where they told you something that was technically true, but it's not the whole story? You felt like something important is missing in this conversation? That's exactly what's going on here. What they're referring to is about four verses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, we could spend all day unpacking Deuteronomy 24 because there's a lot of really difficult cultural things we would have to pull out of the text to fully understand it. But let me just give you a quick snapshot maybe a quick summary, Deuteronomy 24 actually doesn't make a provision for divorce. In fact, it is simply a law of restraint, meaning God's people, even right after the Exodus in Moses' time, are already divorcing and remarrying each other. And the problem is, the way some people are doing it is taking advantage of other people, in particular women. And so in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, Moses institutes two things in order to protect women who have been divorced. One is their husband has to give them a certificate of divorce explaining why he divorced her. 
so that she has evidence of what happened in their marriage. And the second thing is, there's this cycle of remarriage where men are remarrying divorced women so they can take the dowry from them. Which means they're taking already vulnerable women and taking their resources away from them. And so Moses is saying, hey, 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 let's not compound a bad situation with an even worse situation. The idea would be like if you have a teenager, parents of teenagers. You explain to your teenager, right, who wants to go out on a Friday night with his or her friends. Hey, listen, in our house, the expectation is you're not going to consume alcohol underage. It's illegal. It's dangerous. It can be habit forming when you are this young, right? But if you decide to drink, Please do not get behind a car, the wheel of a car, and if you are in a vulnerable situation where you're going to be taken advantage of, please call. Why would you have that conversation? Let's not compound a bad situation by making it worse, and that's exactly what Deuteronomy 24 is doing. Let's not compound divorce with exploitation, greed, and taking advantage of vulnerable people. All right? Everybody good? So, That's then why Jesus responds the way he does. And he says, actually, the problem is not with the law of Moses. And actually, the problem is you're getting this entire interpretation wrong. The problem is your heart. And he uses this phrase, hard-heartedness. So the diagnosis is a heart problem, not a law problem. And Jesus is explaining the reason Moses gave you this law is not to give you permission to divorce your wife, but to prevent you from doing something desperately evil. That divorce and all of the other things happening in Deuteronomy 24 are an outworking of a hardness of heart. Now, this is a term that's often used in the Bible. Jesus uses it often. And what it means, the idea of a hard heart is a condition that... It develops inside of all people when we fail or refuse to respond to God. When we fail to see God's intention for our lives, God's design for our lives, when we shut ourselves off from God, the Bible says what we develop is a hard heart. And the more we refuse to obey and acknowledge God, the worse and worse that problem gets. And so, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, because you have a heart problem and you're constantly looking to take advantage of other people. Now, we're talking about God's people. You understand that, right? Because of this, Moses had to write this law. Your hard heartness is just what's pushing you to try to find some sort of advantage. So Jesus is saying the problem isn't with Moses' law and the problem isn't with marriage. The problem is us, you that you and I have an inability to live according to God's intention, that we often reject God's purpose and design for marriage and a lot of other things and use it for our own purpose or according to our own design. The problem here in this text is not with marriage and it's not with understanding Deuteronomy 24 and trying to sort out the entire law. It indicates a problem at the heart of who we are. And so in response to that, Jesus does really good biblical interpretation. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, The Bible is difficult oftentimes to understand, and there are a lot of confusing passages. In fact, Deuteronomy 24 would be a very confusing passage. And so there's a principle in understanding the Bible that we try to teach here at Mercy Hill that's been employed for thousands and thousands of years that Jesus is going to give us an example of. 
when you come to a confusing passage, the best thing to do is to find a clear passage and let that help you understand the confusing passage. And that is exactly what Jesus does. And so Jesus then in verse 6 says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus does. He starts with this phrase from the beginning of creation. Here's what he's saying. The way God designed marriage to function at the beginning is different from what you have in mind. He's drawing a distinction between the way things currently are and God's intention. Now, we have to understand a concept that we use sometimes that, that maybe we don't always define. What he's talking about is at creation is before this event that happens in Genesis chapter 3 called the fall. So in the first two chapters of Genesis, at the beginning, what Jesus is talking about, people exist in harmony with God and each other in all of creation. And then the fall happens, which is where the man and the woman at the beginning rebel against God. And the fall describes this theological condition of humanity where we no longer exist in harmony with God and with others and with God's creation. And so Jesus is saying, let's go back to the beginning, what God intended before the fall. So... He takes him to creation. You see, he says, God created him male and female. He's quoted from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It's a direct quote. He's saying, at the beginning, God created people, and he created them male and female. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it reads like this. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, it's an important question we have to understand. Doing a lot of work this morning, all right? So we got the fall. Now we need to understand what this is, this image of God. We talk about it often. What does it mean? It's one of the most significant phrases in all the scripture. It's incredibly important for the way we understand who we are and the way other people, uh, way who, who other people are. It means that people, men and women, are both created by God. That God's creation of people is unique from the rest of his creation. No one else is labeled as being in his image. And that we as people represent God, his character and his goodness here on the earth in some way. Now, there's a lot of disagreement about the way. And so some people say the image of God means we're rational beings, we can think. Some people say the image of God is we're relational beings, and so we relate to each other and to God. Some people think uh, image of God is our capacity to love. I imagine it's all of those things. It's all of the little ways, not that we are God, but all of the small ways that as people we reflect God's goodness and character. Actually, The Hebrew word here used for image is most often used in the Bible to describe an actual idol, like the idol on Survivor. Or maybe more appropriately, when someone would sit down and carve out of wood or craft out of stone or or mold out of metal some sort of physical representation of whoever their God might be. And so you get the idea. Instead of these little carved images who are supposed to represent God made by people, what God does in creation is he himself with his own hands makes his own representatives. And instead of being dead, they are living beings. 
It's pretty incredible. So, Jesus is pointing out here then something incredibly significant. God created them, male and female. That Jesus is saying both the man and the woman are equally image bearers. You don't understand this text unless you can understand this concept. Both are made unique by God. Both are created with equal dignity before God. Both share this uh, status as the crowning achievement of all of God's creation. Both are commissioned by God to be his representatives here on earth. Neither is inferior to the other and neither is superior to the other. God created both men and women as image bearers with equal dignity and worth. And so a marriage relationship is between, Jesus is pointing out here, two image-bearing people who both deserve equal dignity and respect. So the implication all the way from the beginning. Now listen, the Bible is full of terrible marriages. If you pattern your marriage off most of the examples in the scripture, you're going to be messing it up. But God's design is equals in marriage, both as image bearers. So the implication here for Jesus's context in Jesus's crowd is this, is women are equals, not servants or property, for you to hand a piece of paper to and send away. To see both the people in marriage as anything less than two image bearers is a problem. Not a problem with me, I just want to point out. That problem you're going to have to take up with Jesus. And it is a hardness of heart that rejects God's good intentions for marriage and the dignity of women for these people in the passage to treat them as anything less. So Jesus is elevating the role of women just in that one sentence. It's like, hey, the reason you're asking me this really jaded question about divorce is because you don't even understand who belongs in a marriage. It's two image bears. But he doesn't stop there. So um, all the progressives in the room were just really happy. All, maybe everybody's very conservative. It's like, man, you might be saying a little too much. Now we're going to flip it, all right? The, Jesus, the Genesis account, though, also draws out a distinction between the sexes. Male and female, he created them. Wow, the man and the woman are both image bearers. They are not identical. They're different from each other. They're distinct. And while the first point of this, the first implication is hard on first century Jews, the second point is probably harder on us in our day and time. But Jesus, referring to Genesis, is pointing out that men and women are not the same. Equal in value and worth and dignity, but not the same. That God created men and women as image bearers who are distinct from each other. There is male and there is female. These distinctions are equally in God's image. And this is important. Please hear me say this. This does not mean there's a deficiency in either one. In fact, it's just the opposite. That maleness and femaleness are a reflection of God, a part of being in God's image, and both, even in distinction, have worth and value. And so this picture that Jesus is drawing on all the way back from Genesis shows their differences 
as complementary to each other. They are different in such a way that it makes it evident that these two distinct individuals created in God's image go together. You're like, okay, why is this important? Um, check this out. Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. This is good. Two people, equal in value, both image bears, but distinct from each other. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God looks at this unit, the man and the woman, in the garden and gives them a twofold task. The first task is this, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And um, this is the PG-13 uh, part of the message. All right, everybody take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. But in other words, here's what God is saying. I'm creating you in order to do something, and the something namely is to you, for you to create more image bearers. You, you get the picture? God's design is for this marriage to lead to increasingly more people who are reflecting the goodness and the character of God. And this is the amazing part. What he's saying is, I want to accomplish this image bearer spreading, and so man and woman, you are are invited to do it with me. And the way that I've thought up for you to join me in my mission, you are going to love. But notice this. This part of the task requires the distinction. Does that make sense? It requires the difference. It is that men and women are different in this way that allows them to be obedient to God's command in Genesis chapter 1. The second task is this, to subdue and have dominion. Uh, the idea here, uh, the word dominion, we don't use that often. Uh, subdue, we don't like. Um, and, and so the idea here is actually make something of it. So God's saying, I'm putting you together in this world, and what I want you to do is make something of it. Do something with it. I just created a world, and so I want you to image me in this way by creating more stuff here out of what I made. Make sense? Now check this out. The idea here is, while the populating the earth with image bearers requires the distinction, this command requires equality. That the man and the woman together are operating in this capacity. So accomplishing God's task for them requires both equality as image bearers and the difference as image bearers. It is this difference that enables them to be obedient to God's task to multiply and fill the earth. Without it, the obedience would be impossible. It is in their equality, their mutual respect and love for each other uh, that enables them to rule, care for, and steward God's creation. They are meant to be together to accomplish the task. So both... So, God, so let's, uh, let me say it this way. God created both men and women as image bearers who work together to accomplish God's mission. That is who is joined in marriage. And Jesus is pointing out here the Pharisees are swinging and missing on God's design for marriage. They're fundamentally flawed in the way they see people. They're not seeing both partners in a marriage as image bearers. They're missing out. That men and women both as image bearers means you cannot treat the opposite sex in whatever way you see fit. 
They're missing out on the complementary nature of their relationship, that they are distinct from each other, and it is precisely in this complementary way that they are designed to be together and accomplish God's mission. And they are missing out on the fact that it is this togetherness that is a part of God's design that allows them to be obedient. That's a lot. Let me give us a word of caution here before we move on to the next part. Here's what is about to happen. Uh, Because I used a phrase like compliment, or because we're talking about this difference in people, what you are about to do is automatically fill your brain with all sorts of ways men and women are different, and most of them will be cultural, not scriptural. In fact, the way that we get in the most trouble with this text is demanding some sort of cultural definition of masculinity and femininity before we develop a biblical theology of who people are and what marriage is. So slow down. If you have some questions about that, there's a number you can text. It's going to be on the screen behind me. We don't have time to unwind all of that madness today, all right? So secondly, not only is Jesus pointing out the people who are in marriage, but he's talking about a pattern, verse 7. It's a pattern of marriage, he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, here's what he does. Quoted from Genesis chapter 1. Now he's quoted from Genesis chapter 2. What he's quoting is a summation of all of Genesis chapter 2. It's a beautiful chapter. I wish we had time to unpack it all, but here's the big idea. Jesus is pointing out in God's good and perfect creation before sin entered the world, God had already set up this pattern for marriage. That marriage is a gift from God before the fall and the pattern works like this. It's threefold. You leave. That word literally means to abandon. And so the idea is that the people involved in marriage, specifically here he talks about the man, but both people have to do this, leaves or abandons any other previous allegiance. Some of you dudes did not figure this out. And your wife's got some mother-in-law problems and it's your fault, all right? Because you didn't do step one, all right? You leave to form something new. You're no longer what you were before. The second thing that Jesus quotes is this idea of hold fast to his wife. It literally means glued together. That you hold fast to your wife and you do it permanently. And so marriage then is not dependent on your own strength to hold fast, but it is like glued, affixed, together. Sound effect, not necessary. (laughs) And then step three, or the result of this, Jesus says, is the two become one flesh. Jesus is saying, here's the pattern of marriage. You're going to grow up in a family as an individual, operating in the context of that family. And you're going to leave that family, and you're going to glue together with your wife, and you are going to become a new unified group, a two that's become one. Now, again, not a lot of time to talk about this. But the intimacy of that union of marriage is reflected in the physical act of sex, which is why the consistent, although very, very unpopular, teaching of the church of Jesus has been for thousands of years that sex between two people is good in the context of marriage. 
If you got questions, it's going to be a number. So then, uh, this, is, this is it. You ready? God's design for marriage is to dignified image bearers, to dignified and diverse image bearers, joining together as one, a living, according, living to live according to God's purpose. That's the picture. Unified together, but not the same. Diverse, yet dependent on each other. Equal, but not identical. And the implication there from Jesus is that anything else falls outside of God's intention for marriage. And just to make sure that you know this is what Jesus thinks, then he gives us his own comment in verse 9. This is not a quote from Genesis. This is Jesus. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Joined together, this idea is implications for the individuals in marriage. Literally, it's that they are yoked together. Jesus is really creating something beautiful here by saying it's these two people equally yoked or joined together in this one union. And marriage, Jesus is saying then, is God's work. God's the one that does the yoking or the joining or the togethering. And he gives a warning. And the warning is, then let's be careful as people how we trifle with it. I love J.D. Jones summarizes this, and I love this. I think it's important. He says, here our Lord appears as the defender of woman and the lifter up of her head. Remember the cultural context. This is part of the problem. Divorce is a means of upgrading, putting women in vulnerable situations. Woman, according to our Lord's teaching, is not man's slave or toy to be dismissed and to cast off at the merest whim and and caprice. She is man's complement and counterpart and matrimony, Jones says, is a holy estate in which woman has equal rights with man. I would say it this way. Marriage is designed by God, is both a good and sacred gift given to people, and as such, we should not treat it trivially. Marriage is a gift intended for our good before the fall. Marriage is sacred. It is God's work, God's design. Marriage is God's territory, not ours. It is something that God made that he has invited us into graciously. And so it is God that sets the rules for marriage, not us. We should avoid treating it trivially, whether that be in terms of divorce or fidelity or definitions or any other thing that you could possibly think of. And evidently, we can think of a lot. Now, the way you are feeling in this moment uh, is exactly the way Jesus' audience felt. Overwhelmed, shocked, possibly guilty, possibly pushing back inside of you, this can't be true, this can't be right. How do we know that? Verse 10. So after this conversation, they go back to the house. We don't know what house. It says, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Matthew gives us a little more context in his recounting of this story where the disciples say, if this is true, none of us should get married. (laughs) Peter was married at this moment. I'm sure he's freaking out, right? Like, I already did this. What did I get myself into? And so they asked Jesus for clarification, and instead of walking it back, this is what Jesus does with his disciples, verse 11. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
Let's just cut immediately to this chase. Jesus unequivocally saying a divorce is wrong. In Matthew and in some other places, Paul handles this as well. There are given some scriptural reasons for divorce. We don't have time to unwind, unpack all those today, but I will reference them a little bit later, all right? But I think this news from Jesus, maybe we could state it like this, that divorce is just simply a violation of one of God's most sacred gifts to his people. And it is worse than you think. And I think more hopeful than you think. Worse, what do I mean? Remember all that talk about us having hard hearts? Uh, In Matthew, this teaching uh, is referenced actually two different times. One time with this encounter, and then another time Jesus teaches almost verbatim what we find in Mark in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest and some would say greatest sermon. It is his teaching on really basically what it means to be a human. And so he's taking the law of Moses and repackaging it for people to understand this is what it means to be a person. Now, the problem with the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus also does something that we don't like, which is in the process of teaching that sermon, he exposes us. He exposes our very hearts. And so he says things like what it means to be a human is not just to avoid murder, but what it means to be a human is to not be angry. And that when you and I are angry, it is no different from murder. And we are liable, he says, to judgment because of that. Or he says, in fact, in the passage right before the teaching on divorce, if you have lust in your heart, it's the same thing as adultery. That it is the condition of our heart, our hard-heartedness, that is actually the problem before God, not all these other things. So murder is symptomatic. Adultery is symptomatic. Divorce, in this case, is symptomatic. Which means the reason this is worse than you think is just because you get this right doesn't mean you're right. That we all have a heart problem before God. Now, remember we talked about this idea of image bearers? Here's what a hard-heartedness does to you and to me. This hard-heartedness starts to transform us from living, breathing image bearers who are representatives of God into dead, carved idols who represent the God of self. In other words, not only is this hardness of heart Outside of God's design for your life and my life, it is literally killing us and shaping us into what we were not designed to be. That the more and more we reject God, his intention and design for our lives, the harder and harder we become like little idols set up as testimonies and objects of worship to our own selves. Way worse than divorce. 
much, much worse. But this is way more hopeful. Because remember, Matthew, Mark at this point is transitioning to the cross. See, our hope in this passage comes from the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection, the shadow of the cross, cast over this passage. Because Jesus came not just to teach us about God's design. Jesus came not just to point us to the law on how we should live, but Jesus came to die for us in our place. And Jesus came to do something about our heart problem. To intervene on our behalf. To do what we were unable to do on our own. There is good news here. Because the person giving you this impossible standard for our relationships and our very lives is also the one who is going to lay down his very life for you in order to rip out, Ezekiel says, this heart of stone, this idol inside of you, and put in a brand new heart. Is beating and living and loves God and desires to live according to God's intention. That's the good news here. That just like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching about lust points us to a heart problem. And just like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching about anger points us to a heart problem. This passage is doing the same thing. And the problem we make all the time is we try to diagnose who should or shouldn't get a divorce and who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And the answer is just this. We're all in the wrong and what we all need is a new heart. The good news, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says is that in Christ, uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and behold, the new has come. All this, he says, is from God who through Christ is reconciling us to himself. Our hope in this passage is that Jesus longs to make us a new sort of people, to redeem us, to restore us. And that by trusting in Christ, whether you violated a marriage covenant, whether you've been divorced, whether you've been full of lusts, whether you've done whatever, by trusting in Christ, we can be a new creation. Jesus came in order to do that for us. So don't miss the point this morning. Now, the question is maybe then this, what about me? What do I do? I'm going to take a few extra minutes. You guys okay if we take a few extra minutes? Because I think this part is really important. Her Jen Wilkins say this, when it, when it comes to being exposed to our own guilt, we only have two responses. We can repeat. We just keep doing what we've been doing, hoping it gets better. Or she says we can repent. The word repent is a Bible word that just means to turn. And so the idea here would be that we would turn away from seeking our own intention and design to seeking God's design. And so what I want to do just for the next few minutes is talk directly to a few different people in here and help you figure out what that might look like in repentance. So first, if you're married and thinking about divorce, I want to say this clearly. I think we can see from the text, divorce is never what's best. 
God has a design for marriage that is permanent, lifelong union of two lives as one, and that's God's best. However, I want to be very clear that while divorce is never what's best, there are some times when divorce is the best option out of the options available. Does that make sense? There's some clear places in Scripture. And so I want to be very clear. If you are thinking about divorce or relationships issues because you're in an abusive relationship or overly controlling a relationship or in a relationship where there's some sort of serial adultery or unfaithfulness that puts you in a vulnerable situation or has you feeling trapped, if you're in a marriage where there's been a consistent violation of the marriage covenant by your partner and that is so significant that it is impossible for you to carry on without injury, either from unfaith, there is, uh, it could be unfaithfulness, it could be concessions uh, around maybe you've been abandoned. It, it could be a lot of things. I want you to hear clearly that is not God's design for marriage and we want to help. Does that make sense? Here at Mercy Hill, we're not saying your husband beats you, and because divorce is wrong, then you need to stay in that marriage. We're saying the very opposite of that. We're saying if your husband is abusive to you, that is a clear violation of his marriage covenant, and it is extensive wrong, and just like Moses provided law of restraint for people to not be taken advantage of, we want to make sure you know you don't have to stay in that sort of situation. Okay. If you are thinking about divorce, maybe because it's none of those reasons, things are just rocky right now. It is hard. Look, COVID was hard. COVID's hard on marriages. And your marriage right now is full of conflict, communication problems, a lack of happiness, unsatisfaction. Maybe you just feel like your marriage is breaking down. I just want to say, we get it. But we also think marriage is worth it. And so here at Mercy Hill, we are willing to do whatever it takes to come alongside you to make sure that is not the pattern of your marriage moving forward. When we started the church, we did this weird thing. We created a line item budget for Christian counseling. We didn't have any people to go to counseling, right? Like, it was a little weird. But we just wanted to make it a priority to come alongside people who just need some help. And so if that's you, we just want you to know we're here to help. I would encourage you to take advantage of it. Get some help. This is important enough for you to not to treat it trivially, but to pursue every means necessary to try to make things work out. Try your best. And then I would just encourage you, I think another important thing is just belonging to a community of faith who can help you see when you're in the wrong and when you're not. That's the hardest thing about this, is often people feel guilty for things they're not responsible for or guilty for, but then not some people, some people don't examine and see maybe where they were in the wrong and they need some help. All right, if you are divorced, divorced, not remarried, divorced and remarried, you're probably asking, what does this mean for me? What implications does this mean for my life? Here's what I would say. I think the key to following Jesus is repentance. The mark of a Christian is not that you've had a perfect marriage or not even that your marriage stayed together. 
The mark of a follower of Jesus is repentance, that you are willing to be honest about any shortcomings that maybe you had in your marriage. You're willing to move past defending any sort of decision-making that you had. You're willing to say, here's where I was wrong, here where I was wronged, and here's how I'm going to move forward. And so what we would ask of you is not anything crazy. It's just produce fruit that shows repentance. And so if you're remarried, you'll be remarried the best possible way you could be married. Love your spouse now the way you wish you would love your spouse then. All right, if you're married uh, and you just don't like some of the things that I said, maybe there's not a problem, maybe there's not an issue, I just want to encourage you in every way possible to treat your marriage as sacred, not trivial. This is a big takeaway for us if we're married. Treat our marriages as sacred, not trivial. If you're single, uh, single by choice or not by choice, uh, single because maybe you feel a calling to it or single because maybe things just haven't worked out, uh, maybe you're single because you've experienced same-sex attraction and have you just chosen to live a celibate life out of a, some sort of feeling of calling, of obedience to Christ. It could be a lot of different categories here. And you could be feeling a little excluded in this moment. You could be single uh, again. You, you could be single in a lot of ways. Here's what I want to remind you of. Uh, the person teaching this passage was single, Jesus. And so there's no way that this teaching reflects any sort of lack in you because to say that in any possible way, you would have to say that Jesus was also lacking, which we know that's not true. If you're single right now, then you are a person created in God's image. This is, again, why the distinction is so important. You are a woman, single, made in the image of God with infinite worth and value regardless of your marital status. Or you are a man created in the image of God with infinite worth, value, and dignity, regardless of your marital status. And you get to be a part of the same mission. Now, remember this image-bearing thing for those of you who are single? There's a major problem that happens with this populating the earth with image bearers, and the major problem is this thing called sin. So not only is there not image bearers, but the image bearers that exist don't reflect God's glory. And so God created this new thing called the church, which is a new family of God where all people belong regardless of their marital status and all engage in the mission together as complementary co-workers in order to make sure that more and more image bearers hear the good news of Jesus and are restored as image bearers. And so here you have a place, an important place. We hope you know that. And then finally, um, if you just hate everything that I said today, um, <laughs> well times, well times, Stephen. Uh, I, 
I want you to know it's okay. I get it. Uh, no matter what camp you fall in, there's probably some things that I said that are incredibly unpopular. I understand this is radically different from maybe what you were taught or what you believe or what you've seen in the world around you. I get that. Uh, I'm not angry with you. And in fact, I don't think we have to agree on this to be friends. We don't have to agree on this for you to belong to this church. We don't have to agree on this for you to feel welcomed here. We don't have to agree. The most important thing that I told you today is not possibly that we might disagree on a definition of marriage or that possibly you were in the wrong for the way that you think about it. None of that is that important. The most important thing that I said to you today that I hope you take away with, even if you hate everything else, is that you are immensely loved by the God of the universe who longs to rescue you from the ways that this world and even in our own hearts are destroying us as human beings. That's what I want you to know. We can figure out everything else. And so there's no pressure here for you to conform to that belief. There's no pressure here uh, for you to be excluded. We're not kicking anybody out today, except for maybe me. I might be keep getting kicked out today. <laughs> Uh, but you belong here, and here's why. Because every single one of us, whether we get marriage right or not, are broken at the heart of who we are. And every single person here, every single one of us who's a follower of Jesus has publicly admitted we messed up royally. We lived outside of God's design, maybe in some different ways, but that's what we've all admitted. And so let me just say, if you disagree, if you hate what I said, it's okay. You're in good company. There's a time in my life where I hated, hated it too. 